This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The world as a whole, it's very hard to come up with precise estimates as to how much we're spending on existential risk. Uh, but it, uh, it is, we can say with confidence that it's less than we're spending on ice cream. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, and this week I talked to the philosopher Toby Ord about the end of civilization as we know it. OK, it's not all doom and gloom. As Toby says, he's an optimistic person. But in his new book, The Precipice, he explains why we're at a point in time where we, as a species, are teetering on the edge of extinction. We discuss how much potential us Homo sapiens have, what's putting our continued survival at risk, how civilization as we know it could come to an end, and what are the odds we'll actually see out the century. I'm Toby Ord. I'm a uh, philosopher at Oxford University. I'm originally from Australia and uh, have a background in science as well as philosophy, uh, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, so I, I, in some ways, I got into philosophy from uh, computer science because uh, logic is something that's studied uh, in both fields. Uh, but also, I've always really been interested in ethics uh, on, on the larger scales. Uh, they're kind of, what are the big questions facing humanity? Uh, and, uh, and how should we act on them? Uh, is the kind of thing that's always interested me. And I ended up uh, ultimately moving across uh, into philosophy and ethics. Uh, although in s some cases, things like artificial intelligence are coming full circle and I'm having to, uh, uh, to catch up on where the field is now. <laughs> right, okay. And so is that... Is that you know you, you say you you talk about the really big questions? We're not talking about like um, on a on a sort of life scale or a global scale. You're you're going full full big universal sort of level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so most of uh, of ethics or moral philosophy, as we also call it, uh, is about questions at the personal scale. Uh, so uh, uh, that you shouldn't uh, lie or steal, or you know, is it the case that uh, that it's wrong to eat meat, for example? So there's kind of modern question uh, from a personal scale. Uh, but at sometimes we ask these broader questions about what's the right thing to do in society. Uh, and uh, even questions more recently on a global scale. Uh, for example, uh, I've looked uh, extensively at global poverty and global health and what we can do about that as, as one of the, the big questions that I've, I've tackled previously. And uh, environmental questions are often asked at that level. But more recently, I've been interested in things going one level further than that. So you might say, how do you do that? Uh, well, not just all people uh, in our generation, but thinking about the perspective of humanity and uh, uh, the uh, 10,000 generations before us uh, and the thousands of or millions of generations that might follow us and trying to ask, how does that change things? So you're looking at it as a sort of like we are just a point in time of the, the, the grand sort of spectrum of human existence. Yeah. So when you're thinking about global uh, ethics, you might be thinking uh, 
you know, what should, what should we be doing about climate change or something like that? Um, or what should the world be doing about global inequality? Um, and that kind of breaks down to a question about what would be the, the best pattern of behavior for everyone to be doing? And what would be my part in that pattern of behavior? You know, what role would I play? Uh, or you might think, well, given everyone else does what they'll actually do, which is not part of this best pattern of behavior, what should I be doing on the margin to kind of change that? Uh, and you can ask those similar questions from this perspective of humanity as well. Uh, if humanity, you know, really cared about its future and achieving its potential and making sure that it doesn't fall victim to any risks along the way, uh, what would it be doing differently? And, uh, and what role in that could I play? Or perhaps if people aren't going to be doing that, then what role could I play in trying to wake humanity up uh, to these to these risks? So I, I, listening to that, I sort of thought about the whole sort of uh, you mentioned sort of climate change in there. Um, mm -hmm. the, the very, on a very basic level, things like recycling is that we we should all recycle more. I need to do a bit more recycling, and and I do this sort of thing. But if everyone else isn't doing enough, then that that creates a problem. Um, as as a whole, because it's, you know not everyone's doing enough. Are you are you looking at it on a sort of you know humanity level scale? Yeah, uh, tr trying to think. Yeah, I even even bigger than uh, than questions like that. Um, so I think that uh, if you look at over the last two hundred thousand years, humanity's been alive. Uh, we've had these these great changes uh, over that time, uh, particularly. Uh, by cooperating across time and building up our knowledge, uh, this kind of intergenerational cooperation has enabled us to do these amazing things that we could never have done otherwise. Uh, the, the technological world around us is, uh, you know, required the hundred billion lives that have come before us uh, to to make these countless innovations that goes into like everything that I can see looking around me at home here. I can see almost no original natural objects. Perhaps my own body is the only example. Uh, everything else has been kind of carved or uh, or forged or assembled in in some other ways, and each of those things required just so much innovation. And I've become uh, extraordinarily grateful to all of these people who came before me uh, in thinking about this. Uh, and uh, there's there's every uh, possibility of of continuing this progress for another hundred billion lives or more ahead of us. That's uh, quite. We, I was going yeah. to say that's quite an optim optimistic view of things. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think generally uh, I, I'm something of an optimist, uh, and it, and it's this optimistic view that uh, that makes me uh, concerned about things that could threaten this entire potential. It's because I think the future could be so bright uh, that I'm uh, especially concerned about the risks that we might be facing now. So, what sort of you know, you say the future could be so bright. What sort of future could we be looking at where we actually sort of achieve this potential, and then? You know, what are the risks uh, towards that goal? Mm -hmm. So when I think of the potential of humanity, uh, there's the future, I think there's three three useful dimensions to think in terms of. One is that the future is very long. Um, you know, it's so much longer than this fleeting present, uh, just as the past is. Uh, you know, the, as I said, these 10,000 generations of Homo sapiens, uh, and we're, you know, just one of them. Uh, but the future could also be even much longer than that. Uh, a typical species uh, on Earth uh, survives about a million years. Uh, we've lasted 200,000 so far. So you could think of us as in our adolescence, uh, just just reached enough power to really get ourselves in trouble, but without the wisdom to really keep that power in check. 
uh, and without any, in this context, without any adults to really uh, uh, keep us under control. Uh, and then, uh, but we could live a lot longer than that. Uh, the, the horseshoe crab uh, has been around for 450 million years, uh, almost unchanged over that time. And, you know, absent uh, these existential catastrophes uh, that I'm concerned with uh, at the moment, uh, without those, th there's not really a fundamental reason why we couldn't last that long. Uh, and so the future could be of huge time, and it could also be of immense physical scale. Uh, we know that there are uh, more than 100 billion stars uh, in the Milky Way, and that uh, many of these have planets uh, in the habitable zones of those stars. And so we could perhaps scale up you know, what is possible uh, by factors of, of billions. Uh, and then there are billions of these galaxies uh, throughout the cosmos. So it's, it's possible that, that also in terms of physical scale, things could be much larger. Uh, and then also in terms of both the quality of our lives, uh, I think could be much higher. Uh, we could, we've made substantial progress. Uh, we've doubled our lifespans uh, on average in the world in the last 200 years. And I uh, have made you know, dramatic improvements to things like literacy and, uh, and prosperity. Uh, and we could go much further. Uh, I think one useful way to think about it is to think about your peak experiences, how much better these kind of shining moments that occasionally happen are compared to the, the humdrum typical moments. Uh, and I know that I would trade, you know, my, my, my typical experiences are by no means bad, <coughs> uh, but I would definitely trade uh, thousands of them for the peaks. And that suggests that, that there's room for much better lives where we spend much more of our time at the peak. Uh, so I think that those three dimensions of, of time and space and quality suggest that we could have a future uh, of almost unimaginable quality uh, compared to uh, the present and that therefore protecting that future and that potential uh, is of this really uh, immense importance. So does that mean that, you know, you say that the horseshoe crab has lasted 450 million years and it's sort of unchanged, whereas I, I guess Homo sapiens, we've changed quite a lot and, and you, you say that we've built on other generations and other generations. So we've we've got to a point a lot further on, um, you know, all due respect to the horseshoe crab, mm -hmm. you, you would say that we've, you know, there's more potential for us there uh, in the future. Yeah, uh, we have this... Uh immense potential uh yeah in part because of these unique mental abilities that we have which have enabled us to accumulate cultural knowledge uh and including scientific knowledge uh over these generations uh if we just had to uh, rely on one generation if we weren't able to transmit knowledge across generations uh then even a crude iron shovel uh would be forever beyond our reach uh it's only because we've managed to uh, to build on the innovations of our ancestors, to make these small modifications, and then to pass these improved things down to our children, that we've managed to reach this scale. And that's something that no other animal species has been able to do. Um, so that brings me to ask, your your book is called The Precipice. Now that, that sort of sounds um, uh, 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 as if it's sort of something that um, we're at a point in time where maybe maybe that's in jeopardy. That is exactly right. Uh, in that case, uh, the right message has come across. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's uh, a, I think, uh, a uniquely important time in human history, uh, quite possibly the most important time that there has been and will ever be. Uh, and this is for a relatively simple reason, uh, which is that if you 
if you look at the natural risks uh, to which humanity has been exposed uh, over these uh, 10,000 generations, those risks can't be all that high or that you couldn't explain why we and other species last as long as we do. Uh, since we got through about 2,000 centuries, it's difficult for the risk to be you know, much more than about one in 2,000 per century, or you just don't expect to have lasted this long. Uh, so using an, a slightly more sophisticated version of that argument, we can bound these natural risks, this background level of risk, to quite a low amount per century. But then uh, with humanity's escalating power, you know, this exponentially increasing ability to affect the world around us, in the 20th century with nuclear weapons, this finally reached a point where we're so powerful that we could potentially destroy ourselves. And this power is then showing no signs of, uh, of slowing down these increases. And I think that uh, in this century, uh, we'll have a substantially higher chance again of destroying ourselves, uh, either leading to our extinction or to some other way in which our potential is permanently curtailed, uh, such as an irrevocable collapse of civilization that we could never recover from. Uh, so I think, therefore, that we are at this uniquely important time and that when people it, it, this time can't last that long because if if the risks are anything like i think they are uh, i think that there's about a one in six chance that we don't make it through this century with our potential intact one in uh, six sounds sounds extraordinarily uh, risky yeah well I, some people think that's surprisingly high and some people think it's surprisingly low depending on uh uh perhaps what newspapers they've been reading or something uh but uh, but if it is if it is in that ballpark, then one can't survive many centuries with risk like that and it escalating. So I think that either the time will end because we get our act together, we rise to the challenges, and we make a concerted effort to bring these risks low and keep them low, or it will end uh, in disaster. Uh, but either way, I think it will be a relatively short and critical time in our story, such that if we survive beyond that, in the grand course of human history that follows, I think when people look back in time, that this will be uh, the most important time, you know, probably be a time when lots of their stories are set uh, and where people wonder about, you know, why people took the actions they did in this critical time. And I think that that gives our time uh, an immense meaning as well and meaning in the lives of people alive now that how can they act with regards to these unique challenges of our time. There's a, there's a lot to unpick there. Uh, I, I have to say, like, just thinking about it, it is kind of... The, the the small period of time that we live in compared to all we've existed um, that that we're now in mm -hmm. has such a big impact on the future. Um, I was just wondering, you say it st sort of started with the uh, the advent of nuclear weapons. Can you would you be able to sort of explain why the, the why nuclear weapons became such an existential threat to um, you know our life mm -hmm. as we know it? Yeah, there's there's two things there. Uh, one is that when the scientists were developing nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, Edward Teller, um, who developed the, uh, uh, the hydrogen bomb, he had the idea of that even before they'd actually developed uh, the, uh, the fission nuclear weapons, the atomic bomb. Uh, and he was thinking about fusion, which would, which would power it. And he started to wonder um, that if we could make a fusion reaction work, um, which is the type of nuclear energy that, that powers the sun, maybe uh, you would trigger it with a fission bomb uh, to start it off, to trigger the fusion reaction. And then, hang on, maybe the fission bombs that they were trying to build uh, in World War II, maybe they would create an uncontrolled uh, 
fusion uh, reaction in the atmosphere, uh, fusing the nitrogen in the atmosphere and creating this fireball that engulfed the entire world. And they, you know, they had, there were some heated arguments about this. Um, uh, and ultimately, they thought it was unlikely that this would happen. Uh, probably this, this fireball would cool as it expanded and so it become no longer hot enough to be self-sustaining. But they had trouble ruling it out. In fact, the official report they wrote, uh, you know, classified at the time, uh, said that more research is needed. And yet they did the Trinity test. And even uh, one of the uh, one of the the key uh, figures uh, wrote in his diary at the time when the flash of the bomb was much brighter than expected uh, at the Trinity test that he thought that 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 was it, that they had accidentally ignited the atmosphere and destroyed the world. Uh, so they, it was therefore, they thought that they, they, it was hard to put a number on it, but they thought that there was a realistic chance this would happen. And so it's kind of crazy that they actually went ahead with that, uh, considering that at the time they did it, uh, Germany had surrendered and Hitler was dead. Um, so they really didn't need to actually go ahead with that. So th that's one aspect. And then the much more well-known aspect, uh, and, or I should say, it turned out that that wasn't physically possible. Uh, so in one sense, there was no risk at all. But in this other sense that's more relevant, they didn't know that. And, uh, and they, given the best evidence and the best scientists at the time, they were having a lot of trouble ruling it out. And their, their paper that tried to rule it out was never peer-reviewed or exposed to external scrutiny. And they had a lot of you know, internal biases that would make them want to continue with the project. You know, so it didn't really have any external review. And no political figures actually uh, assessed uh, the decision and gave it approval. It was just kind of the scientists took into their own hands. Um, but then, uh, when, you know, when they created nuclear weapons, there were then these additional worries once we had enough of them, uh, that it could cause a nuclear winter. And that's the current threat from nuclear weapons. The idea that, uh, the soot from burning cities would rise so high into the atmosphere that it would rise above the level of the clouds, uh, into the stratosphere from which it wouldn't be rained out, um, and then it could last a long time and cause uh, something in the order of five degrees of global cooling on average across the world uh, for a decade or so. Uh, and that this would cause uh, major crop failures uh, and could potentially uh, cause billions of deaths and maybe even uh, a global collapse of civilization uh, or human extinction. So that, that, that's the kind of, yeah, that's the kind of concern there. And we're not sure about that. It could be that the effects of nuclear winter are smaller than is envisaged, but they could also be worse. And there's a lot of uncertainty, which doesn't actually make the problem much better. Hmm. I guess um, the fact that we don't, we, we never really want to be in a situation where we have to, we can test that um, raises quite probably quite the ethical dilemma as to whether, you know, were there ever to be a nuclear war, whether, you know, whether it should go ahead at all. Uh, yes, uh, that that's exactly right. There, there is this real challenge with these things that um, when it comes to science, often we only report scientific you know numbers in science papers when those numbers have been produced by you know countless experiments, making sure the error bars are very small and that the numbers are very accurate and could be repeated and objectively tested by other scientists in other labs. But there are some things that are of critical importance and of scientific relevance such as what would be the level of cooling in the world if you had a global nuclear exchange, uh, which are very important and we need scientists to work on them. But they can't you know, run a thousand such global nuclear wars in order to, uh, to get the numbers more precise. So this does raise substantial methodological challenges about 
how to produce numbers, how, how to produce best estimates in those situations. And are there, are they, you know, th there surely are some better and worse ways of doing it. And we need the best information we can get, uh, despite not being able to ever actually run the test. So it makes me think in your in your book, you do describe sort of like you say earlier that there's like a one in six chance that mm -hmm. that that, you know, we might not see through the century. Um, and then there are various other disasters, both natural and man-made, that 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 have a sort of waiting, uh, an odds attached to them. How, how would you be able to come up with them? And, and how, you know, how much should we rely on these as being genuine indicators of, of our potential future? Yeah, uh, look, it's a it's a real challenge. Um, and I, what I felt when I was when I was writing the book was that there were certain numbers which the which scientists have established. Uh, for example, uh, that there's about a one in 120,000 chance of an asteroid uh, greater than one kilometer in size hitting the Earth, which is interesting, uh, but it's not quite the same as what's the chance that we would have human extinction from an asteroid collision because we don't know the chance that a one kilometer asteroid hitting the Earth would cause human extinction. So even in a situation as well understood as, as asteroid risk, there's still this very unknown parameter uh, that also has to go into it. Uh, so I, I do include the most important uh, kind of numbers we can stand by uh, from the scientific evidence. But I also thought it'd be a real shame if I've, I've spent uh, a decade uh, researching these things and a few years uh, in particular on the book if I then just didn't tell people what I thought about all of these risks uh, and how I saw them all fitting together. Uh, so I, I am aware that in some cases, like the IPCC on climate change, they try with these with a lot of these things to express probabilities in terms of natural language. So they say things like unlikely, um, and then they associate that with a particular probability range. Uh, but I found that, that that's actually can cause more trouble than it's worth. Uh, because those words, I think, are actually are not just measures of probability. They depend on the stakes. There's certain things where, you know, if it's, uh, you know, maybe a 10% chance of rain tomorrow means it's unlikely to rain tomorrow. But a 10% chance that you would die tomorrow, uh, we wouldn't call that as unlikely that you'll die tomorrow. Um, so, uh, uh, so, and in this case, the stakes are so uniquely high. It's, it's even worse than 7 billion people dying. It's losing our entire future. Uh, so the stakes are uniquely high, such that even probabilities of the level of, say, one in a thousand or one in 10,000 are extremely important and would be enough to warrant immense action. So uh, we don't want to give them names like exceedingly unlikely because it's difficult to go to someone and say, hey, we've, we've discovered that the chance of this happening is exceedingly unlikely, which is much higher than we thought it was. And so we should go ahead with all of these measures to protect against it. It sounds kind of stupid. So I did try to actually express uh, the, these things in, in numbers, and uh, I'll probably get in trouble for it. Uh, but I really, I really felt that it was a, you know, I would be shortchanging the reader if I didn't actually tell them what I thought about all of these things. Uh, so that that includes things like a uh, one in a million chance uh, of an existential catastrophe via an asteroid or a comet impact. Uh, this, these are all over the next hundred years. Uh, a one in uh, 10,000 chance of all natural risks put together, um, a one in a thousand chance of either nuclear war or climate change uh, leading to our downfall. Um, and then for, uh, for new anthropogenic risks that are still on the horizon with, with new technologies that are still under development, 
I think that some of the risks are even higher. And, and I estimate a one in 30 chance of an existential catastrophe due to engineered pandemics and a one in 10 chance due to unaligned artificial intelligence. So they're just a few of the, of the numbers uh, that, that are my, my best estimates given uh, you know, a decade of looking into this and consultation with all of the top experts in the field. Mm. It sounds like the the biggest risks that we have are, you know, we we imagine that earthquakes and volcanoes are bad, but it sounds like the biggest risks that we have are the ones that are very immediate and very human made, and they're going to be like either now or in the very um, a very close future uh, that have been mm-hmm. created by us. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that. If you take the natural risks and then you move to the current anthropogenic risks, I think that the, the current anthropogenic risks are about 30 times the background rate from natural risks. Hmm. And then I think that the, uh, the risks in the near future, in the next, you know, the coming decades are about 50 times as large again. Uh, so I think that there's a real escalation in, in the amount of risk here. So presumably we can, you know, we've had natural risks we, we've known about for a long time because they're part of the natural world and we, we've evolved mm-hmm. next to them. But these human-made risks, it, it sounds like we should either we should know the risks that they face or be aware of, of what we're creating that could, you know, create these problems. Is there not, you know, should we not be doing something about stopping these happening now? Uh, we, we certainly should. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're typically doing very little about it. Uh, so... This, you, I mean, I, I, I would certainly forgive people for thinking that, well, this all sounds very heavy. Um, it's a good thing we've got elected leaders and uh, institutions to be dealing with these things. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, when I've spoken to people in government uh, and international institutions, they, uh, they all tend to think that this is above their pay grade. Uh, the idea of spending money to defend the entire earth and the whole future of humanity, I, I mean, uh, America does a bit of it with uh, uh, NASA funding for the Space Guard program, uh, looking at asteroid defense. Uh, I think America still feels uh, uh, strong enough in the world to, to think it's not unreasonable that it would play some kind of role of defending the entire world. Uh, but for most countries, that it's just not something that they're normally thinking about. Uh, and in fact, you can kind of see why, uh, because take a country like the United Kingdom, uh, it has only about 1% of the world's population live in the UK. And so uh, if it's thinking about its own national interests, uh, only about 1% of the good of protecting humanity uh, comes to its own citizens. So you'd expect it to undervalue this by about a factor of 100. And it's even worse when you think about the intergenerational aspect, because only a small number of the people who'd be affected are alive in our generation. Most of them are still in these countless generations to come. Uh, so there's a, a strong reason to expect it to be undervalued. And the world as a whole, it's very hard to come up with precise estimates as to how much we're spending on existential risk. Uh, but it, uh, it is, we can say with confidence that it's less than we're spending on ice cream. Uh, so uh, I guess that, that fits into my analogy about us being like an adolescent. Uh, you know, uh, the, the next election cycle would correspond in this analogy to the next five years. Uh, and where, you know, it's very hard for for us to think beyond, sorry, it would correspond to the next five hours in the lifetime of an adolescent. And it's very hard for us to think beyond that. So we're, we're like this incredibly impulsive and impatient uh, uh, child who is, uh, uh, yeah, is risking its entire future uh, just for the, you know, for the next high. 
So is there something that we can we can do about that? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that there is. I think <laughs> that that for for particular technologies, uh, that we should be uh, paying much more attention to the governance of these technologies. We often send our you know our brightest young people uh, to work on biotechnology or artificial intelligence. But we send far fewer people to work on the governance of biotechnology or artificial intelligence. Uh, and I think that we need uh, more uh, uh, scientists uh, thinking about this uh, and, and paying a lot of attention to developing the parts of their field that are protective uh, against the risks and also interfacing with government about governance for the technology or self-governance. And we need more scientifically literate people uh, in government in order to kind of play the other side of this uh, and that that would be extremely helpful. And I think that we actually, we're a bit slow, but people did rise to the, in awareness about nuclear war and the risk of that. Uh, the, in America, near the end of the Cold War, uh, the, the biggest protest in American history uh, was, uh, was for nuclear disarmament because of fears of the end of the world. Uh, and similarly with climate change uh, and the protests at the moment, uh, there, there, you know, people rightly see that there is some chance of this. It's, it's not a, a high chance in terms. Of, it's not like ten percent chance that climate change could destroy uh, the whole world, uh, but I think it's hard to eliminate the chance that it, that it might do something like that. Uh, so, I think that people are noticing this with particular risks, but it's important also to actually to address the general problem. Um, across all of these risks to realize that we're in this complicated situation where humanity is good at learning from trial and error, but this is a case where we can't afford even a single error for this, cla you know, this classification of risk. So how are we going to get through centuries of time without ever once falling victim to these things? We're going to need new approaches to this, um, new international institutions uh, uh, to govern some of these technologies. And we need to start thinking about that now. I guess, um, I guess, with things like climate change and and to some extent uh, AI, we can sort of see what the risks that are, are, how far the risks away, and and what they might pose. But future generations, they may have risks that we just can't even contemplate at this point. That that is right. Um, and uh, even over the next hundred years, uh, when I'm doing my estimates, I, I I put the chance of an unforeseen form of anthropogenic risk at one in thirty. Uh, it's almost impossible to estimate that that kind of number, uh, but that's based on me thinking about what would it have been like a hundred years ago, trying to uh, classify the risks that we face over the next hundred years. What's the chance I would have missed a major one? Uh, things like that. Trying to think about what it would be like doing that at different points in history, and then trying to use that to to have some idea about the chance of missing big risks in the future. So there could well be new things, and wouldn't it be amazing if we got the world into a state where uh, where from the very get-go of development of these new technologies that could pose existential risks, if we also were, were devoting a huge amount of effort to governance of them and, uh, you know, slowing down if, if we need to um, or just continuing but with a large investment in, uh, in safety, if, if that will suffice. Hmm. And then we might be able to, uh, you know, prepare ourselves with that extra knowledge for anything else that might occur. Exactly. Uh, ultimately, at the moment, if we keep subjecting our, ourselves to substantial risk every century, it's an unsustainable trajectory. You know, if you, even if you run a one in a hundred chance uh, uh, of risk uh, every century, 
then on average, we only survive 100 more centuries. Uh, and, and we've survived 2000 so far. So this would mean that we're right near the end of human history because of our actions. Uh, and I think that that would make us, you know, one of the worst generations that have ever lived. But if instead, if we if we notice that and we rise to these challenges and we put in place the institutions uh, needed uh, in order to safeguard our future, uh, then we could be one of the best generations that's ever lived. That was Toby Ord, whose book The Precipice is out now. If after all of that you're looking for some light in these weird and unusual times, we've got an excellent offer you to take advantage of. For anyone who's used to buying their copy of BBC Science Focus magazine from the shops, we've sorted it out so you can get three issues sent directly to your home with no delivery charge, risk-free, and it won't require you starting a direct debit. Plus, we're not 15% off the cover price. If, on the other hand, you are happy to set up a direct debit, you can get your first six issues for just 9 99 Head over to buysubscriptions.com and pick the offer that works best for you. Otherwise, please carry on listening out for future episodes of the Science Focus podcast by subscribing, rating and reviewing our show. And have a potter through our back catalogue of more than 100 fascinating episodes. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.